This morning, the gospel from Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Do not do as they do. Not exactly a ringing endorsement of the leaders of the faith. Jesus is not pleased with their actions. He says, it's okay, listen to what they teach. But then there in verse 3, do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. That's just the first of a whole series of criticisms that Jesus levels against these scribes and Pharisees saying that they walk around trying to get attention, wanting extra respect. They want different kinds of privileges amongst the people. They want to be called by different titles. The one he mentions is rabbi or teacher. He instructs his disciples not to follow that example. All the criticisms that he levels against these leaders have to do with ego satisfaction and status in terms of society or social standing with privilege where they want to be set apart as somebody better or different than everyone else. Jesus argues for what one Bible commentator described as egalitarian community. He says to his disciples, don't be out there searching for titles you have one teacher you have one god and we are all students in the christian community we are all students children of god and followers of christ we need not seek human accolades or social status distinctions and especially within the family of faith that is why tithing is an interesting part of christian practice in so many organizations, if you want to join, there's an entry fee or there's dues to be paid. Not so in the church. The Bible teaches us to think about our giving as part of our spiritual life, to give our first gifts back to God, but then to think in percentages in terms of how much we give. The scriptures often talk of tithing or giving 10%. So you can think about it like this. If you make $100 a week, then your tithe would be $10. But if you make $1,000 a week, then your tithe, your 10%, would be $100. I think you can see how that's a more equitable way to think about giving 
a fairer way, a way to kind of level the playing field when we know that all of us make different amounts, have different sources of income. We're not asked to all give the same dollar amount, but we're all asked to think about percentages and strive to be those who tithe the first 10% back to God through the church. It's a fairer way to practice giving within the family of faith. In this passage that we've just read today, Jesus has a passionate concern for greater equality in our life together and fewer social status distinctions. He's taking the opposite position from the leaders of the synagogue or the temple. He's saying we should look at everyone the same in terms of respect or dignity, not that we're all given the same gifts or all have the same income or all do the same thing, but in terms of how we treat each other within the faith community, we should treat everyone with respect. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes a step further in verse 11. I put it in your outline where he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. The greatest among you will be your servant. I had a funeral about three weeks ago. I had another one 10 days ago. Both of these guys were pillars of this church. They were the kind of people who were here every Sunday, out in the hallways greeting, passing out bulletins, helping people find their way around the building volunteering during the week to help out in one way or another, working in their Sunday school classes or with scouts or some other organization within the church. They were the kind of people that if you needed some help, you could get on the phone and give them a call, and they would be ready to respond and serve. They were humble servants of the Lord. One of them, in fact, said to his wife, I don't even need a public funeral she thought differently, so did I. It's helpful when the Christian community gathers after the death and loss of one we have loved. Certainly the family is coming together in their grief and we're surrounding them with gestures of support and love. But it's not just the immediate family or the extended family, it's also the family of faith. When we lose one of these humble servants who serve for so long and so well across the decades, we lose something within the family of faith as well. Humble servants among us make all of us better Christians. They model the way. They show the way. They serve here at church. Sure, that's fantastic, but it's not only here. They live their lives that way outside of this building looking for a way to help someone else to care for somebody else, to give somebody else a hand up, to help out whenever they can, wherever they are, because they have that servant heart, that servant mindset, where they're not looking for special accolades for themselves, but are looking for a way to serve and help somebody else. The last verse of the text we read this morning Jesus points out all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This whole passage turns upside down our ideas of greatness 
when Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant, that's not what we expect to hear. That's not what our culture teaches us. We're to strive to be at the top, not to be at the bottom. To have somebody else serve us, not to look for ways we can serve others. Humility and service are the virtues Jesus raises up today for us to consider. What does your life look like? Have you latched on to humility and service as keystones of your faith? Jesus suggests it's a good place to start. One of the reasons you don't see a lot of plaques around this building with names on them or buildings with names on them is because we don't encourage people to give or serve so that they get human accolades. We think of it as part and parcel of our life of faith. It's a blessing in itself to be able to give or to serve someone else. When Paul's writing his letters to the early Christians, he often refers to us, to them, as the body of Christ. Then he tells them over and over, you are part of the body of Christ and you've been given gifts, but not just for your use or to raise you up, but you've been given gifts to share with the body, with the family for the common good. Oh, yes, you've received gifts, but you're to share them and give them to others generously and bountifully. Our stewardship theme this year was about Barrington Bunny, who realized he was related to all the animals in the forest. And when he caught on to that, he was wanting to give them all gifts, and he was signing it from a member of your family. I talked about theologically when we recognize that we're part of the family of God, when we're part of the work of God in the world, then we are eager to give gifts for others. We want to bless others and to serve them so that they too might know the joy and love of life in the Lord as followers of Jesus Christ. Certainly the life of Christ follows that trajectory. When Paul is writing to the early Christians at Philippi, he summarizes the life of Christ like this with instructions to those early Christians. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. To be a great Christian is to offer yourself and your gifts in humble service. 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was someone who found himself grasped by a moment where he was being called on by his community to serve. He had grown up in a parsonage, his father a pastor. He was a good student, went on to college, went on to seminary after that, went on to study and earn a Ph.D. in religion. As he was finishing up that final degree, it was 1954, he was called to Montgomery, Alabama to be a pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He could not have known that the next year, the newest pastor in the community was going to be asked to lead the Montgomery bus boycott. But that's what happened, and he rose to the occasion and began to speak about and lead this boycott against segregation, particularly in that case, on the buses of the city, but also to begin to speak about equal rights and civil rights for all, especially for black Americans who have been robbed of those over the many years our country has been established. The other thing that was happening in the late 50s was that television was a new medium. And so not only was this being covered in Montgomery, but it began to be amplified across the state and the region and finally across the country and around the world. Dr. Martin Luther King became a household name that everyone knew. But it's interesting to me that he did not seek celebrity status, even though television had greatly amplified his profile. He continued to serve as a pastor in a local church. He continued to do the hard work of speaking out and speaking about injustices that plagued our African-American community. He continued to do the hard work, even in the face of so many threats to his personal well-being as well as that of his family. One of his last sermons was entitled, The Drum Major, I've read recently that actually he got the idea or the image from a Methodist pastor. He took the idea and shaped it into his own. He said to his congregation, to his people, you need not worry about being out front like the drum major. You'd be better to be back in the ranks, marching along, ready to serve. In fact, he said on that sermon, in that sermon that, he would hope that everyone wouldn't get caught up in things like the Nobel Peace Prize, which he had won, in addition to other kind of awards, but that they would think of him and remember him at his death as one who gave his life to serve others. Ironically, that was about two months before he was shot to death. I want to read to you just a few lines from the sermon. I've read these before. It may be the favorite part of all that Dr. King wrote or said. For me, it goes like this. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness, Dr. King writes. By giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great because everybody 
can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. And you can be that servant. Everybody can be great because everybody can serve. Did you see that Broadway play that came through town earlier this month? Come from away. I had opportunity to go and see it. It was fabulous. It was different than so many of the Broadway plays that have huge sets and fancy costumes and a lot of background changes. It's a very simple stage, a few wooden chairs and a table. But oh my, what talent, what they did with those chairs and table. They made it about a dozen different scenes. The story talks about people who come from away, which is how the people in Newfoundland talked about those who came. This play tells the story of what happened on 9-11. It centers around a pilot, sort of the main character. Her name is Beverly Bass. She was the first female pilot to lead an all-female crew for a major airline. That day, she had a plane full of people who were, she was flying from Paris, France to Dallas, Texas. They're over the Atlantic when she gets a message that a plane has flown into one of the Twin Towers. She thinks it must have been an inexperienced or amateur pilot. Then a little while later, she gets a second message that another plane has flown into the other tower. And American airspace begins to get shut down. She's told she can't fly into American airspace. She's redirected to this airport in Gander, Newfoundland. Population of the town, only 9,000 people. But it's not only her plane, it's her plane and 37 others. They're all directed to Gander. In the matter of a few hours, the population of this small town has doubled. And nobody is sure what's going on or what to do next. She and her passengers were stranded on their airplane, sitting on the ground, but not able to get off the plane for 28 hours. They're without news coverage at this point until they get off the plane. And then they realize something terrible has happened. And although the play captures the heartache of that day, it also lifts up the inspiring story of what the people in Gander did in responding to these thousands of people that have descended upon their town without notice. They begin to 
argue about what to do, but they overcome their differences until they're ready to serve food. They stay up all night cooking and bringing things together so they can open their schools, cafeterias, and set up table after table of food so that these people who have been stranded on the plains can at least eat. Then they begin to invite people into their own homes to try to meet their basic needs. The play tells the inspiring story of friendships forged that go on to today, of love that grew in the midst of that terrible experience. It's a powerful story showing what one little town decided to do in response to the terror of that day. Thousands literally thousands of people deciding to be humble, willing servants to help someone they never had met and most likely would never know, although it was such a powerful experience that some of them have stayed in touch. A few of them fell in love. But it's amazing to think about What would happen if thousands of us decided that we were dedicating ourselves to be humble and willing servants, listening for the prompting of God, following the teachings of Christ to go into the world and serve as these folks did, to make hospitality and welcome and warmth and caring the center part of their day. I don't know if you saw that old movie that starred Gene Wilder, Silver Streak. It's quite a story, and at the end, he says, someone asked him about the trip that the movie has portrayed, and he says, I laughed, I cried. It became a part of me. May the spirit of gander become a part of us. May the Spirit of Christ reign in our hearts. Amen. And thanks be to God.